don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're gonna miss it. For success like happiness, it cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's dedication to a cause greater than oneself, or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. So happiness must happen, and the same holds for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. I want you to listen to what your conscience commands you to do and go on to carry it out to the best of your knowledge. Then you will live to see that in the long run, in the long run I say, success will follow you precisely because you had forgotten to think about it. That was a passage from the book, Man's Search for Meaning, which we'll be doing a deep dive into today. This book was written by Viktor Frankl in 1946 after he had spent three years in a concentration camp in Germany. So this episode's unlikely to make you laugh, but it makes up for it by being loaded with insights and wisdom to make us think and blow our minds. Now, I did plan to get this out to you guys last week, but this episode, it took a lot longer than I expected to put together. It was a lot of work. So if you haven't done so already, please do me a favor and press follow on your podcast app as it really helps out. So let's not delay any further and get right into it. I thought a good place to start would be having a listen to what some other people have written about this book. In this book, Dr. Frankel explains the experience which led to his discovery of logotherapy. As a long-time prisoner in a bestial concentration camp, he found himself stripped to naked existence. His father, mother, brother and his wife died in camps or were sent to the gas ovens, so that except for his sister, his entire family perished in these camps. How could he, every possession lost, every value destroyed, suffering from hunger, cold and brutality, hourly expecting extermination, how could he find life worth preserving? Somewhere beyond the midpoint of the story, Dr. Frankel introduces his own philosophy of logotherapy. He introduces it so gently into the continuing narrative that only after finishing the book does the reader realize that here is an essay of profound depth and not just one more brutal tale of concentration camps. In the concentration camp, every circumstance conspires to make the prisoner lose his hold. All the familiar goals in life are snatched away. What alone remains is the last human freedom, the ability to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances. So who is this guy? So Viktor Frankl was a professor of neurology and psychiatry at the University of Vienna. And for 25 years, he was head of the Vienna Neurological Polio Clinic. Um, Dr. Frankel, he was born in Vienna in 1905. And at the University of Vienna, he gained a doctorate in both medicine and also a doctorate in philosophy. So he's very well educated. He held visiting professorships at Harvard, Stanford, Dallas, Pittsburgh, all of these universities. And as already mentioned, in the Second World War, he spent three years in Auschwitz, Dachau and some other concentration camps. I also thought I would just quickly mention what this term logotherapy means. It is one of the key themes of the book, so it will be dived much deeper into, but I think it's worth having a surface level understanding of it to begin with, so you have some context. So logotherapy was founded slash developed by Viktor Frankl, and it's the premise that the primary motivational force of an individual is to find a meaning in life. This then gets broken down into the freedom of will, the will to meaning, and the meaning of life. 
The book is divided into two main sections with a small addendum at the end of the book, which was written about 40 years later. In the first section, this is where Viktor Frankl shares his experiences and insights of being in a concentration camp for three years, not just describing how bad it was, but how he was able to, to discover a meaning of life, how he found a meaning in his suffering. And this theme, finding a meaning in suffering, is emphasized a lot in this book. And I hope by the end of this review, you actually understand its meaning. The second section goes more into the philosophy of logotherapy and how you can use it in your life to find meaning. Now, you might be thinking that sounds like a bit of a bore, but with the backdrop of the first section and the experiences which he describes, it actually is very interesting. I mean, he is talking about the most important question that us as human beings ask ourselves, which is, what is the meaning of life? We start with one of the many times that Victor was just a coin toss away from certain death, when they were rounded up and forced into these concentration camps, they initially had to go through a sorting process, and that's where this passage picks up from. He had assumed an attitude of careless ease, supporting his right elbow with his left hand. His right hand was lifted, and with the forefinger of that hand, he pointed very leisurely to the right or to the left. None of us had the slightest idea of the sinister meaning behind this little movement of a man's finger, pointing now to the right and now to the left but far more frequently to the left. It was my turn. Someone whispered to me that to be sent to the right side would mean work. The way to the left, being for the sick and those incapable of work, would be sent to a special camp. I just waited for things to take their course, the first of many such times to come. My haversack weighed me down a little to the left, but I made an effort to walk upright. The SS man looked me over, appeared to hesitate, then put both hands on my shoulders. I tried very hard to look smart and he turned my shoulders very slowly until I faced right and I moved over to that side. The significance of the finger game was explained to us in the evening. It was the first selection, the first verdict made on our existence or non-existence. For the great majority of our transport, about 90%, it meant death. Their sentence was carried out within the next few hours. So that's how his time in the camp started. And upon reflection of his time there, he describes the following summary of the different stages that one goes through. Three phases of the inmate's mental reactions to camp life become apparent. The period following his admission, the period when he is well entrenched in camp routine, and the period following his release and liberation. The symptom that characterizes the first phase is shock. These reactions begin to change in a few days. The prisoner passes from the first to the second phase, the phase of relative apathy, in which he achieved a kind of emotional death. The prisoner who had passed into the second stage of his psychological reactions did not avert his eyes anymore. By then his feelings were blunted and he watched unmoved. So he now gives an example of someone he observed in this phase of apathy while in the camp. He found himself waiting at sickbay, hoping to be granted two days of light work inside the camp because of his injuries or perhaps his edema or his fever. He stood unmoved while a 12-year-old boy was carried in who had been forced to stand at attention for hours in the snow or to work outside with bare feet because there was no shoes for him in the camp. His toes had become frostbitten and the doctor on duty picked off the black gangrious stumps with tweezers. Disgust, horror and pity are emotions that our spectre could not feel anymore. The sufferers, the dying, the dead, became such commonplace sights to him after a few weeks of camp life that they could not move him anymore. Apathy, 
the blunting of emotions and the feeling that one could not care anymore were the symptoms arising during the second stage and which eventually made him insensitive to daily and hourly beatings. By means of this insensibility, the prisoner soon surrounded himself with a very necessary protective shell. Apathy, then, was a necessary mechanism of self-defense. Reality dimmed, and all efforts and all emotions were centered on one task, preserving one's own life and that of the other fellow. Victor explains that in this phase, that he noticed that the ones who fared the best were paradoxically the ones who he called sensitive people with delicate constitutions who came from rich intellectual lives. They were able to retreat from their terrible surroundings to a life of inner riches and spiritual freedom. Victor himself used the memory of his wife constantly to escape his harsh reality. He would have conversations with her in his mind. He was reminded of happier times in the past and used this as an escape into his mind. Victor does a much better job at describing this, so let's hear what he wrote on this. The intensification of inner life helped the prisoner find a refuge from the emptiness, desolation and spiritual poverty of his existence by letting him escape into the past. When given free reign, his imagination played with past events, often not important ones, but minor happenings and trifling things. His nostalgic memory glorified them and they assumed a strange character. Their world and their existence seemed very distant and the spirit reached out for them longingly. In camp, a man might draw the attention of a comrade working next to him to the nice view of the setting sun, shining through the tall trees of the Bavarian woods, the same woods which we had built an enormous hidden munitions plant. One evening, when we were already resting on the floor of our hut, dead tired, soup bowls in hand, a fellow prisoner rushed in and asked us to run out to the assembly grounds and see the wonderful sunset. Standing outside, we saw sinister clouds glowing in the west and the whole sky alive with clouds of ever-changing shapes and colours, from steel blue to blood red. The desolate grey mud huts provided a sharp contrast, while the puddles on the muddy ground reflected the glowing sky. Then, after minutes of moving silence, one prisoner said to another, how beautiful the world could be. Another time, we were at work in a trench. The dawn was grey around us, grey was the sky above. Grey the snow in the pale light of dawn, grey the rags in which my fellow prisoners were clad, and grey their faces. I was again conversing silently with my wife, or perhaps I was struggling to find the reason for my sufferings, my slow dying. In a last violent protest against the hopelessness of imminent death, I sensed my spirit piercing through the enveloping gloom. I felt it transcend that hopelessness, meaningless world, and from somewhere I heard a victorious yes in answer to my question of the existence of an ultimate prize. At that moment, a light was lit in a distant farmhouse, which stood out on the horizon as if painted there, in the midst of the miserable grey of a dawning morning in Bavaria. So this part really made a lot of sense to me. Victor's saying he was using his mind as an escape um, from the suffering, and that makes a lot of sense. And when I was reading it, I was actually comparing it to my own life, now, obviously, nothing in my life compares to what Victor went through in the camps, but that's what I do when I read. I'm trying to relate the words on the page to my life, own life somehow. So let me fill you in on what that made me think about. Back when I was doing a lot of long-distance running training, when I was in a lot of pain and thinking of stopping, I would actually retreat into my mind as well. So that's why I was able to connect the dots here. So I would picture myself running in the Olympic marathon with the streets lined with people cheering out my name, 
And I would also then picture that moment in the marathon when you run back into the Olympic Stadium through the tunnel and out onto the Olympic Stadium um, for one final lap. And I would just picture hearing the crowd roar as you emerge from the tunnel in first place. While I was running, it would give me goosebumps just thinking about it. And I would forget the pain that I'm in. I couldn't feel the pain when I would actually think about that really successfully. And I'd actually be able to run faster. So I would picture this over and over again. I would just be living in my mind, just going through these fictitious examples, and it really worked. Okay, that's enough about me. This next one is another one of those examples where Victor was just a very near miss from certain death. So Victor explained that he and his friend had plotted an escape from the camp, and he shared this news with the chief doctor, who was also a prisoner of war, because they needed his help. So just as they were about to go ahead with the escape, there was news of a prisoner swap where they would actually all be transported to Switzerland to be given their freedom at last in return for some um, German prisoner of wars as well. So this is where we pick back up with a passage from the book. My friend and I stood in the last group from which 13 would be chosen for the next to last truck. The chief doctor counted out the requisite number, but he omitted the two of us. The 13 were loaded into the truck and we had to stay behind. Surprised, very annoyed and disappointed, we blamed the chief doctor who excused himself by saying that he'd been tired and distracted. He said that he had thought we still intended to escape. Impatiently we sat down, keeping our rutsacks on our back, and waited for the few remaining prisoners for the last truck. We had a long time to wait. Finally we lay down on mattresses on the deserted guard room, exhausted by the excitement of the last few hours and days, during which we had fluctuated continually between hope and despair. We slept in our clothes and shoes, ready for the journey. The noise of rifles and cannons woke us up. The flashes of tracer bullets and gunshots entered the hut. The chief doctor dashed in and ordered us to take cover on the floor. One prisoner jumped on my stomach from the bed above with his shoes on. That awakened me, all right. Then we grasped what was happening. The battlefront had reached us. The shooting decreased and the morning dawned. Outside on the pole at the camp gate, a white flag floated in the wind. Many weeks later, we found out that even in those last few hours, Fate had toyed with us last remaining prisoners. We found out just how uncertain human decisions are, especially in matters of life and death. I was confronted with photographs which had been taken in a small camp not far from ours. Our friends who had thought that they were traveling to freedom that night had been taken in the trucks to this camp and they were locked inside the huts and burnt to death. Their partially charred bodies were recognizable on the photograph. It's just crazy to hear stories like that. One decision could mean death. Another decision means living. And you, in the moment, you don't know which is the right decision to make. So anyway, now we're going to move more into one of the core themes of the book, which is about how the human spirit and character has the ability to prevail even in the most intense and difficult conditions one could ever face. So Victor would be telling us over and over again that you always will have liberty over yourself and your own decisions, no matter the, the conditions or difficulties. And this next extract from the book begins to explore this. I may give the impression that the human being is completely and unavoidably influenced by his surroundings. In this case, the surroundings being a unique structure of camp life, which forced the prisoner to conform and conduct to a certain set pattern. But what about the human liberty? Is there no spiritual freedom in regard to behavior and reaction to any given surroundings? 
Is that theory true, which would have us to believe that man is no more than a product of many conditional and environmental factors, being they of a biological, psychological, or sociological nature? Is man but an accidental product of these? Most important, do the prisoners' reactions to the singular world of the concentration camp prove that man cannot escape the influences of his surroundings? Does man have no choice of action in the face of such circumstances? We can answer these questions from experience as well as on principle. The experience of camp life shows that man does have choice of action. There were enough examples, often a heroic nature, which proved that apathy could be overcome, irritability suppressed. Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom, of independence mind, even in such terrible conditions of psychic and physical stress. We who lived in a concentration camp can remember the man who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer significant proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Even though the conditions such as lack of sleep, insufficient food and various mental stresses may suggest that the inmates were bound to react in certain ways. In the final analysis, it becomes clear that the sort of person the prisoner became was the result of an inner decision and not the result of camp influences alone. Fundamentally, therefore, any man can, even under such circumstances, decide what shall become of him mentally and spiritually. Pretty amazing insight to the human spirit that under truly unbelievable conditions that one can still make their own decisions, their own choices, even if that choice was just to have a positive and selfless attitude. Because at the end of the day, we can all only control ourselves and how we choose to respond to things. So now we get into another main theme of the book, which is suffering. Victor says that suffering is an erratical part of life. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. And I agree. One major part of what makes us human is that we know that we're going to die and there will be times of great suffering and that's part of life. The pain and suffering we feel actually motivates us to move away from that pain, hopefully to a better situation. That's what keeps driving us forward individually and also collectively as a species. But what you will hear in these next few passages is really hard to understand. Yes, suffering is required to move forward to a better place. But Victor talks about suffering as an amazing opportunity for us to reach the highest of human greatness. So the, the heights of human greatness. What is he talking about? How can he, in his situation of complete and utter despair, that his suffering is an opportunity? Something to almost be thankful of? It was really hard to understand, but I did work it out. And it was quite the realization. Before we talk about the realization, let me read the next few passages first, and then we'll have a chat about that. Dostoevsky once said, There is only one thing that I dread, not to be worthy of my sufferings. Those words frequently came to my mind after I became acquainted with those martyrs whose behavior in camp, whose suffering and death bore witness to the fact that the last inner freedom cannot be lost. It can be said that they were worthy of their suffering. The way that they bore their suffering was a genuine inner achievement. It is this spiritual freedom which cannot be taken away that makes life meaningful and purposeful. If there is a meaning in life at all, there must be a meaning in suffering. Suffering is an radical part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. 
Everywhere, man is confronted with fate, with the chance of achieving something through his own suffering. Take that fate of the sick, especially those who are incurable. I once read a letter written by a young invalid in which he told a friend that he had just found out he would not live for long, that even an operation would be of no help. He further wrote that he remembered a film in which he had seen which a man was portrayed who waited for death in a courageous and dignified way. The boy had thought it was a great accomplishment to meet death so well. Now, he wrote, fate was offering him a similar chance. Regarding our provisional existence as unreal was in itself an important factor in causing the prisoners to lose their hold on life. Everything in a way became pointless. Such people forgot that often it is such an exceptionally difficult external situation which gives man the opportunity to grow spiritually beyond himself. We could say that most men in concentration camp believed that the real opportunities of life had passed. Yet, in reality, there was an opportunity and a challenge. One could make victory of those experiences, turning life into an inner triumph. Or one could ignore the challenge and simply vegetate, as did the majority of prisoners. So at this point in the book, I was confused. I hadn't worked it out yet. I even wrote a note in my Kindle which said, What is he going on about? How could you think like this? You're most likely going to die. You're starving to death. And I mean that literally. They're working you to the bone. Again, literally. The moment you can't work, you're dead. Strange to be talking about opportunity for greatness. Unless he saw transcending this mindset as a victory, in itself a form of resistance or protest. So that's the best I could come up with when I was reading it at that stage. So let's get back to the book. Emotion, which is suffering, ceases to be suffering as soon as we form a clear and precise picture of it. I became disgusted with the state of affairs which compelled me daily and hourly to think only of such trivial things. So he's referring to constantly thinking about what his next meal is because they're always in a form of starvation. I forced my thoughts to turn to another subject. Suddenly I saw myself standing on the platform of a well-lit, warm and pleasant lecture room. In front of me sat an attentive audience on comfortable, upholstered seats. I was giving a lecture on the psychology of the concentration camp. All that oppressed me at that moment became objective, seen and described from the remote viewpoint of science. By this method, I succeeded somehow in rising above the situation, above the sufferings of the moment, and I observed them as if they were already in the past. Both I and my troubles became the object of an interesting psychoscientific study undertaken by myself. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly. This is where the penny dropped for me. I worked it out. This mindset of finding opportunity in suffering, this was for Victor a survival mechanism. Life and staying alive was the most important thing he could be achieving. By not giving up, by seeing your suffering and your environment as an opportunity, focused his thinking into the future benefit. And this in turn provided a meaning to his life. It was a survival mechanism. So seeing this suffering as a benefit slash opportunity linked the mindset to a future focus, which gave the suffering meaning as it was keeping him alive. Victor goes on to explain the other side of this, the risk to your life if you weren't able to find this meaning in your suffering, not able to focus on the future and give up hope and courage to go on. 
Those who knew how close the connection is between the state of a mind of a man, his courage and hope, or lack thereof, and the state of immunity of his body will understand that the sudden loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect. The ultimate cause of my friend's death was that he expected liberation which did not come, and he was severely disappointed. This suddenly lowered his body's resistance against the latent typhus infection. His faith in the future and his will to live had become paralyzed, and his body fell victim to illness, and thus the voice of his dream was right after all. The observations of this one case and the conclusion drawn from them are in accordance with something that was drawn to my attention by the chief doctor of our concentration camp. The death rate in the week between Christmas 1944 and New Year's 1945 increased in camp beyond all previous experience. In his opinion, the explanation for this increase did not lie in the harder working conditions or the deterioration of our food supply or a change of weather or even a new epidemic. It was simply that the majority of the prisoners had lived in the naive hope that they would be home again by Christmas. As the time drew near and there was no encouraging news, the prisoners lost courage and disappointment overcame them. This had a dangerous influence on their powers of resistance and a great number of them died. We said before, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in camp had to first succeed in showing him some future goal. Nietzsche's words, He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how, could be the guiding motto for all psychotherapeutical efforts regarding prisoners. What was really needed was a fundamental change in our attitude towards life. We had to learn ourselves and furthermore, we had to teach the despairing men that it did not matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead think to ourselves as those who were being questioned by life daily and hourly. Our answer must consist not in talking and meditation, but in right action and in right conduct. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answer to its problem and to fulfill the tasks which it constantly sets for each individual. When a man finds that it is his destiny to suffer, he will have to accept his suffering as his task, his single and unique task. He will have to acknowledge the fact that even in suffering, he is unique and alone in the universe. No one can relieve him of his suffering or suffer in his place. His unique opportunity lies in the way in which he bears his burden. Did you notice that word opportunity pop up again? I remember two cases of would-be suicide, which bore a striking similarity to each other. Both men had talked about their intention to commit suicide. Both used the typical argument that they had nothing more to expect from life. In both cases, it was a question of getting them to realize that life was still expecting something from them. Something in the future was expected of them. We found, in fact, that for one of them, it was his child, whom he adored, and who was waiting for him in a foreign country. For the other, it was a thing, not a person. This man was a scientist and had written a series of books which still needed to be finished. His work could not be done by anyone else, any more than any person could ever take the place of the father in his child's affections. When the impossibility of replacing a person is realized, it allows the responsibility which a man has for his existence and its continuance to appear in all its magnitude. A man who becomes conscious of the responsibility he bears towards a human being who affectionately waits for him or to an unfinished work will never be able to throw away his life. 
He knows the why for his existence, and he will be able to bear almost any how. Now, thinking back to Victor's psychology philosophy named logotherapy, in a nutshell, this is the premise that the primary motivational force of an individual is to find a meaning in life, not the meaning of life, a meaning in your life. He used this exact principle to help those two would-be suicides from going ahead. I think this example cements the principle's use and why it is so powerful. Victor also says, Human life, under any circumstance, never ceases to have a meaning. And this infinite meaning of life includes suffering and dying, privation and death. Now we come to the third stage of a prisoner's mental reaction, the psychology of the prisoner after his liberation, after he has been released. To explain this, Victor writes about his own experience the day he got liberated, after being held prisoner for three years, and then what challenges one can face as he tries to settle back into the real world. We walk slowly along the road leading from the camp. Soon our legs hurt and threatened to buckle, but we limped on. We wanted to see the camp surrounding for the first time with the eyes of free men. Freedom, we repeated to ourselves, and yet we could not grasp it. We'd said this word so often during all the years we dreamed about it, that it had lost its meaning. Its reality did not penetrate into our consciousness. We could not grasp the fact that freedom was ours. In the evening, when we all met in our hut, one said secretly to the other, Tell me, were you pleased today? And the other replied, feeling ashamed that he did not know that we all felt the same. Truthfully, no. We had literally lost the ability to feel pleased, and we had to relearn it slowly. In this part, he wanted to let us know that they weren't suddenly overcome with euphoria and joy. They weren't actually able to. Victor continues, Psychologically, what was happening to the liberated prisoners could be called depersonalization. Everything appeared unreal, unlikely, as in a dream. So he, he likened this to getting a case of the bends. So after being down in the deep water, where the pressure is so high, not too dissimilar to the extreme pressure um, physically and mentally on these inmates, the sudden release of this pressure, it isn't healthy. He's saying that they weren't able to believe it, even though it was true. Their mind and their body was trying to protect them from another disappointment. Then came the period when they tried to assimilate back into society. This part was quite sad. Bitterness was caused by a number of things that he came up against in his former hometown. When, on his return, a man found that in many places, he was met only with a shrug of the shoulders and with a hackneyed phrase, so a commonplace or everyday type of phrase. He tended to become bitter and ask himself why he had gone through all of that he had. When he had heard the same phrases nearly everywhere, we did not know about it, and we too have suffered. Then he asked himself, have they really nothing better to say to me? The experience of disillusionment is different. Here, it was not one's fellow man, but fate itself which seemed so cruel. A man who for years had thought that he had reached the absolute limit of all possible suffering now found that suffering has no limits and that he could still suffer more and still more intensely. When we spoke about attempts to give a man in the camp mental courage, we said that he had to be shown something to look forward to in the future. He had to be reminded that life still waited for him, that a human being waited for his return. But after liberation, there were some men who found that no one awaited them. Woe to him who found that the person whose memory alone had given him courage in camp did not exist anymore. Woe to him who, when the day of his dreams finally came, found it so different from all he had longed for. 
We all said to each other in camp that there could be no earthly happiness which could compensate for all we have suffered. We were not hoping for happiness. It was not that which gave us courage and meaning to our suffering, our sacrifices and our dying, and yet we were not prepared for unhappiness. This disillusionment, which awaited not a small number of prisoners, was an experience which these men have found very hard to get over. Okay, that sums up the first part of the book where Victor shares his experiences and his time in the concentration camp. And he uses this not as a woe is me type of thing, but to gain credibility. That he not only teaches this stuff, he lived it. He saw it firsthand in the most difficult experiences someone could ever have to endure. He saw those who survived. He himself survived. And he was able to test his theories firsthand. And it held up. Logotherapy is used today still for various purposes, including addiction, pain and guilt, anxiety, grief, and depression. So this next part of the book then tries to unravel the theory of logotherapy. Logos is a Greek word which denotes meaning. So logotherapy focuses on meaning of human existence as well as on man's search for such a meaning. According to logotherapy, this striving to find a meaning in one's life is the primary motivational force in man. Logotherapy therefore regards its assignment as that of assisting the patient to find meaning in his life and tries to make the patient aware of what he actually longs for in the depths of his being. Victor then repeats a quote which was mentioned many times in the book and twice already in this review. He says, There is nothing in the world that could so effectively help one to survive even the most worst conditions as the knowledge that there is meaning in one's life. There is much wisdom in the words of Nietzsche. He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. This book sold millions of copies all over the world. And Victor had a guess that the reason for this was there is a widespread phenomenon which he called an existential vacuum. Now, to unpack that a little, existential is related to, say, human existence. And vacuum, I interpreted that to mean emptiness. So human existence is overcome with an emptiness, with no meaning. And I would say that this is even more true today. This can explain why the book was and is so popular. We have an easy life. We have so many comforts and we are often bored and we try and fill that boredom with, say, TV or endless scrolling on our phone, myself included. So let's hear Victor's thoughts on boredom. The existential vacuum manifests itself mainly in a state of boredom. In actual fact, boredom is now causing and certainly bringing to psychiatrists more problems to solve than distress. And these problems are growing increasingly crucial. For progressive automation will probably lead to an enormous increase in the leisure hours available to the average worker. The pity of this, the pity of it is that many of these will not know what to do with all their newly acquired free time. Now, don't forget, this was written in 1946. I don't think he could have imagined a world of 2023, but I think he was bang on. So the solution is about finding a meaning in life, not the meaning of life, because that's impossible to answer. It's going to be different for everyone, but a meaning in life, in your life, something like an important work, family, or even unavoidable suffering. But it should be something bigger than yourself. For example, if you find yourself in a dead-end job that you hate, but you honestly can't leave for whatever reason, even this can have a meaning. It could, for instance, be providing for your children to get through school or give them opportunities that maybe never had yourself. That's the meaning in the suffering. But don't suffer when you don't have to, of course. If you can change your circumstances and still provide for them, then you should be doing that. Now we move on to responsibleness. 
which Victor says is an imperative part of logotherapy. First, he explains why responsibleness is necessary. Each situation in life represents a challenge to man and presents a problem for him to solve. The question of the meaning of life may actually be reversed. Ultimately, man should not ask what the meaning of his life is, but rather he must recognize that it is he who is being asked. In a word, each man is questioned by life, and he can only answer to life by answering for his own life. To life, he can only respond by being responsible. Thus, logotherapy sees in responsibleness the very essence of human existence. Okay, we have established that there is a responsibility factor in how we choose to respond to each situation in life, that we are responsible for finding what this meaning is for our own lives. In this next excerpt, Victor takes it to a new level. This is probably one of the best passages in the entire book, but I had to read it through a few times to really grab it. Feel free to skip back and to listen to it again if you want. Here it is. By declaring that man is responsible and must actualize the potential meaning of his life, I wish to stress that the true meaning of life is to be discovered in the world rather than within man or within his own psyche, as if it were a closed system. I have termed this fundamental characteristic the self-transcendence of human existence. It denotes the fact that being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than oneself, be it meaning to fulfill or another human being to encounter. The more one forgets himself, by giving himself to a cause to serve or another person to love, the more human he is and the more he actualizes himself. What is called self-actualization is not an attainable aim at all, for the simple reason that the more one would strive for it, the more he would miss it. In other words, self-actualization is possible only as a side effect of self-transcendence. My note to myself on this paragraph in my Kindle was, the meaning of life is outside of us, not within. Back to the excerpt. The meaning of life always changes, but it never ceases to be. According to logotherapy, we can discover this meaning in life in three different ways. One, by creating a work or doing a deed. Two, by experiencing someone or encountering someone. And three, by the attitude we take towards unavoidable suffering. This third one I think we can all now understand a lot better given the experiences shared to us already. But it doesn't have to be confined to relevance only in a concentration camp. We all have suffering, some of which is unavoidable, and the attitude we take in the face of that can provide a meaning on all on its own. Victor gives an example. Let me cite a clear-cut example. Once, an elderly general practitioner consulted me because of his severe depression. He could not overcome the loss of his wife who had died two years before and whom he had loved above all else. Now, how could I help him? What should I tell him? Well, I refrained from telling him anything but instead confronted him with this question. What would have happened, doctor, if you had died first and your wife would have had to survive you? Oh, he said, for her this would have been terrible. How she would have suffered. Whereupon I replied, you see, doctor, such a suffering has been spared her. And it was you who have spared her this suffering. To be sure, at the price that now you have to survive and mourn her. He said no words, but shook my hand and calmly left my office. In some way, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. But let me make it perfectly clear that in no way is suffering necessary to find meaning. I only insist that meaning is possible even in spite of suffering, provided... Certainly, that the suffering is unavoidable. 
If it were avoidable, however, the meaningful thing to do would be to remove its cause, be it psychological, biological or political. To suffer unnecessarily is masochistic rather than heroic. I should note that this book was added to in 1984 by Victor, nearly 40 years after it was originally written. So some of these following examples, like the one I'm about to share next, are from his time long after the war. The mother of a boy who had died at the age of 11 was admitted to my hospital department after a suicide attempt. Dr. Kurt Kokorek invited her to join a therapeutic group, and it happened that I stepped into the room where he was conducting a psychodrama. She was telling her story. At the death of her boy, she was left alone with another older son who was crippled, suffering from the effects of an infantile paralysis. The poor boy had to be moved around in a wheelchair. His mother, however, rebelled against her fate. But when she tried to commit suicide together with him, it was the crippled son who prevented her from doing so. He liked living. For him, life had remained meaningful. Why was it not so for his mother? How could her life still have a meaning? And how could we help her to become aware of it? Improvising, I participated in the discussion and questioned another woman in the group. I asked her how old she was and she answered 30. I replied, no, you are not 30, but instead 80 and lying on your deathbed. And now you are looking back on your life, a life which was childless, but full of financial success and social prestige. And then I invited her to imagine what she would have felt in this situation. What will you think of? What will you say to yourself? Let me quote what she actually said from a tape which was recorded during that session. Oh, I married a millionaire. I had an easy life full of wealth and I lived it up. I flirted with men. I teased them. But now I'm 80. I have no children of my own. Looking back as an old woman, I cannot see what all that was for. Actually, I must say my life was a failure. I then invited the mother of the handicapped son to imagine herself similarly looking back over her life. Let us listen to what she had to say as recorded on the tape. I wish to have children, and this wish has been granted to me. One boy died, and the other, however, the crippled one, would have been sent to an institution if I had not taken over his care. Though he is crippled and helpless, he is, after all, my boy, and so I have made a fuller life possible for him. I have made a better human being out of my son. At this moment, there was an outburst of tears and crying. She continued, As for myself... I can look peacefully on my life, for I can say my life was full of meaning, and I have tried hard to fulfill it. I have done my best. I have done the best for my son. My life was no failure. Viewing her life as it from her deathbed, she had suddenly become able to see a meaning in it, a meaning in which even included all of her sufferings. By the same token, however, it had become clear as well that a life of a short duration, like that, for example, of her dead son, could be so rich in joy and love that it could contain more meaning than a life lasting 80 years. This next passage provides a comparison on the well-known glass half empty or glass half full type of person and the power of perspective. You can have two totally different mindsets given the exact same situation. The pessimist resembles a man who observes with fear and sadness that his wall calendar, from which he daily tears a sheet, grows thinner with each passing day. On the other hand, the person who attacks the problem of life actively and is like a man who removes each successive leaf from his calendar and files it neatly and carefully away with his predecessors, after first having jotted down a few diary notes on the back. He can reflect with pride and joy on all the richness set down in those notes, 
on all the life that has already lived to the fullest. What will it matter to him if he notices that he's growing old? Has he any reason to envy the young people whom he sees or wax nostalgic over his lost youth? What reasons has he to envy a young person? For the possibilities that a young person has, the future which is in store for them, no thank you, he will think. Instead of possibilities, I have realities in my past. Not only the reality of work done and of love loved, but of sufferings bravely suffered. These sufferings are even the things which I am most proud. Now, I know I'm harboring on about this finding meaning in suffering thing, but I think it's a key point as we all have some form of unavoidable suffering in our life, whether it be health issues, loneliness, mental health conditions, or whatever. So what I'm about to read is actually a letter that Frankel received from someone who read the book and found meaning in his sufferings. Jerry Long has been paralyzed from the neck down since a diving accident, which rendered him a quadriplegic three years ago. He was 17 when the accident occurred. Today, Long can use his mouth stick to type. He attends two courses at community college via a special telephone. The intercom allows Long to both hear and participate in class discussions. He also occupies his time by reading, watching television and writing. And in a letter I received from him, he writes, I view my life as being abundant with meaning and purpose. The attitude that I adopted on that faithful day has become my personal credo for life. I broke my neck. It didn't break me. I am currently enrolled in my first psychology course in college. I believe that my handicap will only enhance my ability to help others. I know that without the suffering, the growth that I have achieved would have been impossible. Don't you just think to yourself while hearing that, wow, what an amazing attitude to have and what an inspiration. If he can face his suffering like that, then I can certainly change the way I face my much more trivial suffering. And that is the point. He can be proud of the way he faces his suffering. We know it's easier to say, woe is me, this terrible thing happened to me and my life's over. The harder response is to say what he said. He broke his back. It didn't break him. And that is where I'm going to end the review. This episode took a lot of time and effort to put together, so I really hope that you enjoyed it. Also, if you haven't already, could you please press follow on your podcast app, as that's the biggest thank you I can receive. As always, you can get in touch with the show on our Instagram page using the handle at ltbympodcast or emailing us at ltbympodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah, this is how I feel.